All right, in the big picture, Jesus is on his way towards Jerusalem. Uh, in the coming chapters, uh, which again, we're taking a break for home groups, so we'll get to, you know, in several weeks. But in the coming chapters, we'll see that Jesus actually enters Jerusalem, as in in the final week before his crucifixion. So we're not quite to that place yet, but he's on his way towards Jerusalem. And this is where we come to Luke chapter 18, beginning now at verse 1. Then he spoke a parable to them that men ought, excuse me, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. It's very interesting when we think about prayer because I think it can be said that God puts a spiritual instinct inside every person. In Ecclesiastes, it says that God has put eternity within the heart of man. And there's something within the heart of every man and every woman that sort of wants to reach out and connect with the eternal. It should seem that in some ways, prayer should be the most natural thing in the world for us. We should be able to connect very effortlessly with God because we are made in his image. Yet nevertheless, isn't it true? We need to learn how to pray. We need to learn to pray, and we need to learn how to pray. And the specific aspect of prayer that Jesus wants to focus on now with his disciples in this first section of Luke chapter 18 is he wants to speak to them about how they should not lose heart in prayer, how they should continue on and to persist in prayer. And I think that it's very easy to talk about this this evening. Because this is something that has application to each and every person here. I'm looking out on a room full of people, and I could look in the mirror in the same way and see people who need to pray better. And who need to pray more more persistently. That's exactly what he's asking for here. So, he says here, verse 1, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Why do people lose heart in prayer? Well, I can think of a few reasons. Uh, It's easy to lose heart in prayer because prayer, especially if you're doing it right, it's hard work. I remember in one of the letters of the Apostle Paul, I believe it's Ephesians, he speaks of a man named Epaphras, and he speaks of Epaphras and says that Epaphras is always laboring in prayer. And the specific words that he uses in the ancient language indicate hard, difficult labor, sort of back-breaking work, like digging a ditch or, you know, stacking heavy things or something like that, because that's how prayer is. I like what one old British preacher named Morrison said about this. He suggested that prayer is so taxing because there's three aspects of the human person that are involved in it. Number one, there's the understanding that's involved in prayer. Number two, he said there's the heart that's involved in prayer. And number three, there's the will that's involved in prayer. And all of those things, putting them forth together towards one task, It's hard work. It's exhausting. And that's one reason why we lose heart. Another reason why it's easy to lose heart in prayer is very simply because the devil hates prayer. I mean, after all, if prayer was powerless, it would be easy. The devil wouldn't mind it at all. But because prayer is so powerful, that's one of the reasons why the devil does not want us to pray. And I'll just suggest a third reason. I'm sure we could come up with several more. But a third reason why it's easy to lose heart in prayer is because we are not always convinced of the power of prayer. I mean, look, let's face it. 
How often for us is prayer the last resort? Instead, what it really should be for us is the first resource. It's the first thing we turn to. But how often have you had it? I mean, this is, this is a testimony in my life, too, all too many times. It's like, well, I've done everything else I can think of. I might as well pray now. And only after I've exhausted every other possibility, well, okay, I'll pray. No, no, no. It should be our first resource instead of our last resort. So Jesus now is going to speak to us and give a parable telling us about how important it is to not lose heart. But I just want you to remember that this is coming from a Savior who himself lived a prayerful life. By the way, not only did Jesus live a prayerful life on this earth, the Bible says that right now ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father, he ever lives to make intercession for his people. Jesus has a heart for prayer. And he wants his people to have a heart for prayer as well. He wants them to have the same heart for prayer like that Canaanite woman who didn't stop when Jesus seemed to first refuse her request. He wants her to have the same heart of prayer that Jacob had when he refused to let go of the angel when he wrestled with Jesus himself, I believe. And even though his hip was struck, he would not let go. He wants us to have the same heart of prayer that Rachel had when she made a request of Jacob. What did she say? She said, give me children else I die. You know, now that's prayer, isn't it? And so this is the same heart that God wants us to have. And here he's going to tell a parable towards that end, starting out verse 2 of chapter 18, saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said, and shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Okay, so this is the parable that Jesus told to teach us and to inspire us to greater perseverance in prayer, that we would not give up, that we would not lose heart. And what's this parable all about? Well, notice it there in verse 2. He says, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man, and there was a poor widow who brought her case to this wicked judge. Now, this man was ungodly. The judge was. He was ungodly as a man. He was ungodly as a judge. Yet in the end, what did he do? In the end, he answered the woman's request. Why? Did he suddenly become a good man? No. Did he suddenly become persuaded of the rightness of her cause? No. No, the only reason he answered her prayer was because she kept on bugging him. And because she kept on bugging him, he said, okay, I give up. I will answer your prayer. Now, the Bible commentator William Barclay believes, and he quotes a few ancient sources to sort of back this up, that this would not have been a Jewish judge. In the ancient world of that time in the first century in in Israel, when the Jews had a dispute, they would take their dispute to the elders of Israel. 
But you could also take your dispute to a judge that was appointed by either Pilate or Herod or some representative of the Roman world. Now what William Barclay says is that these Roman judges who were sort of appointed by the magistrates, these Roman judges were notoriously corrupt. And they wouldn't decide a case at all until people bribed them. And the more bribery you gave them, the better your case would come out. And so Jesus is drawing on something that the people would be very familiar with. Here's a judge who's just a wicked man. He's he's an evil man. He doesn't care anything. He has no conscience. But in the end, he gives the woman what she wants. Why? Because he says here, verse 5, he complained that the woman would weary him. Now, that's a very expressive word in the ancient Greek language. It really means, according to Adam Clark, stun me. He says it's a metaphor taken from boxers who bruise each other. Another commentator says that literally, he says, she's going to give me a black eye. Now, he didn't mean that literally, not that this old widow would come and punch him in the face, although that would have been pretty entertaining to see. But he means her constant bothering me. It's like she's beating me up. I just don't want to have this anymore. I'll give her what she wants. And that's the whole point. Look at it there in verse 4. The judge says, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this woman widow troubles me, I will avenge her. The unjust judge only reluctantly answered the woman's request. Now, please understand this. Jesus did not give this parable to teach us that God is like the unjust judge. And that if you want God to answer your prayer, you better bug him and bug him and bug him and bug him because God's so wicked that he'll only answer you if you don't leave him alone. No, that's not the idea. No, instead this is drawn from a completely different idea. This is drawn from the idea of contrast. God is not like the unjust judge in the parable. He is unlike the unjust judge in the parable. And God loves to answer our prayers. As a matter of fact, God loves to answer our prayers so much that he helps you when you pray. Isn't that one of the most important things you can pray? Lord, help me to pray. And and to ask that, to be very conscious of this idea that you're receiving the Lord's help even as you pray. That's how much God loves it when we pray. God is on your side when you pray. He's not against you. The unjust judge was against this poor widow, but God is for us, especially when we pray. You see, the woman had to overcome the judge's reluctance to help. And let's be honest. Sometimes we feel like that when we pray to God, don't we? God, why are you so slow? How many times do I got to ask you for this? Usually, not always, but usually these things that we agonize in prayer for have to do when we pray for another person. God, why don't you wake them up? God, why don't you rescue them? God, why don't you pull them out of their stupidity? God, why don't you save them? On and on and on. And we just say, Lord, how many times do I got to pray this? You know, when I'm up here on the prayer team and somebody comes up for prayer and they'll ask for something that obviously has been a long, ongoing situation. Let's say they have a wayward child and the child's been wayward for 20 years. I commonly think this poor person has probably prayed 5,000 times for their wayward child. And listen, I have no idea why God would honor and answer the 501st prayer. 
And I don't think he was deaf to the 5,000 prayers before that. I'm not trying to apply that he was. All that I'm saying is God says, don't give up hope. Keep praying. Matter of fact, I'll go so far to say this, that God has a purpose that we can't always see. Matter of fact, we can rarely see why God would delay an answer to a prayer. You see, we think it's a delay, right? I don't know about you, but I think I got a pretty good idea about when God should do things. (laughs) Would some of you please talk to the Lord about this and tell him to listen to me a little bit more on when to do things? Because I got it all figured out. And yet, when I have my idea and my plan about when God should do things, I'm not going to say that he never does things on my schedule because, you know, sometimes, just through the blessing of God, God's schedule and my schedule, you know, happen to coincide. But you know what? I just realized God is not on my schedule. He knows. He has a plan. And if one purpose in what seems to me to be a delay in God's answer to prayer, if one purpose of that is to draw out of me a greater sense of dependence upon him, then I'll receive it. Okay, Lord. I I wish I could just say, all right, Lord, in Jesus' name, save everybody in the world, bam, and it's done. But, you know, it just doesn't work like that, does it? Instead, God uses these things to draw out a certain sympathy, a certain heart out of us. So much so, God draws it out of us to sort of do this. He wants to build in you and in me the kind of heart that cares for things the way that he cares for them. And oftentimes, he does that by drawing us very close to a problem the same way that he is close to it. And when we pray briefly and get discouraged very quickly and run away, well, then it's no good. Spurgeon said something like this. He said, too many of our prayers are like when you play, well, he said, when a boy knocks at a door and runs away. We used to call it ding and ditch when I was a kid. Did you ever, what's that? Does anybody appreciate that, ding and ditch? Right. Okay, I got some amens out there. You know, where you run a, ring a doorbell and then run away. Oh, what great fun, you know. Some, you know, you, you get to be my age, you think, what a stupid game. But we would do that, you know. And, but isn't that sometimes how we are in prayer? Well, we ring the bell, then we run away. Oh, gosh, something else is going on. Instead, we're what? God would say, hey, um, if you're going to ring my bell, why don't you come on inside my house? Why don't you spend some time with me? Why don't you learn my ways? Why don't you get to know me? And, and things will be answered, things will be dealt with in their own time. Now, both Jesus and Paul prayed for things repeatedly. There's a very famous instance where Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, if this cup passed for me, and it says that he prayed it three times. Paul, in the very famous instance of the thorn in the flesh, prayed three times that it would pass for him. And, and, and those prayers, in a sense, uh, they needed to be repeated. They, they were repeated the same way. So it's not necessarily sinful to repeat the same prayer. Yet I would caution you on this. There is a repetition of prayer that reflects tenacity. Lord, I'm going to pray for this. I'm not going to let go. Kind of the give me children, else I die. That kind of tenacity. Okay, there's that. But you know, there's also a sort of repetition in prayer that I think expresses unbelief. Oh, I prayed. I guess God didn't hear my first prayer. I better pray again. That kind of repetition in prayer is a manifestation of unbelief. And it should be avoided at all costs. So, Some repetition in prayer is wrong, 
But other kinds of repetition in prayer are glorious, and it denotes this kind of persistence that God wants us to have. But please note, friends, there's a huge distance between God and this unjust judge. The judge was unfair. God is fair. The judge had no personal interest in the widow, but God loves you, and he cares about those who come and pray to him. And the judge answered the widow's cry out of pure self-interest. He didn't care about the widow at all. But God loves, his blessed, loves to bless his people for their good as well as for his glory. So Jesus says, verse 7, Shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him? I read a few commentators who suggested something. And I don't think it's crystal clear in the text, but at least it's suggested by the text. They're wondering if Jesus isn't speaking about the prayer that would be in the mouth of someone who's being persecuted. Because he's asking God to avenge them. And it just made me reflect. I can't say I know for certain that this is what Jesus meant, but let's just say that he did. It made me reflect on a few things. First of all, it made me reflect on the fact of how difficult persecution is when it comes against people and how they cry out to God to be delivered from it. And yet, nevertheless, sometimes they have to bear the sword. Sometimes they have to lose the job. Sometimes they have to see the family split up. Sometimes there's that kind of persecution. But it also made me reflect on this, on how many Christians all over the world today are being fiercely persecuted. Look, I I don't know if you're aware of this, and and I'll just mention this briefly. But I don't know if you're really aware, but this is the age of the greatest persecution against Christianity that's ever come upon the face of the earth. We're living in it now. More Christians die for their faith in the world today than have throughout the centuries of Christianity. It's a tragedy. It's terrible. And look, let's be honest. In the comfortable Western world, we don't feel it. But in other parts of the world, it's a bloodbath. And our hearts and our thoughts go out to our persecuted brothers and sisters all over the world. And we say, Lord, sustain them. Lord, avenge them speedily. And when we say avenge them, we don't mean necessarily to bring down judgment upon their persecutors, though I would not mind seeing that but more so bring an end to their persecution and bring the glorious fruit of their suffering to to bear. Anyway, going on here now, starting at verse 9. He also spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. By the way, that's just one of the best lines in the whole Bible. He prayed thus with himself. Just isn't that the best? Isn't that the best? He prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. By the way, in the ancient language, this is emphasized. Or like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Isn't that just the best story ever? Can't you just visualize that happening, right? Isn't that just like a movie running in your head when you read that? And it's a parable. Jesus didn't actually see this at the temple, but people probably saw things very much like it. And so everybody's imagining what's going on when Jesus describes this scene. Verse 10 describes, two men went up to the temple to pray. Both men prayed, but both men did not come to God in the same way. The Pharisee went up to the temple to pray, but he did not pray. He spoke with himself. He didn't speak with God. And so it says there in verse 11, he prayed thus with himself. You can notice it. In his prayer, he repeated the word I five times. I, 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 me, my. That's his prayer. It's a very, he's praying thus with himself. Do, Do I need to make the application to us? It is not wrong in the slightest to bring your needs to God. God cares about your needs. He said to you and he said to me that we should pray, give us this day our daily bread. He cares about even the mundane needs of every day. But it's an entirely different thing when our whole life, when our whole worship thing is self-focused and it's all about me. That's exactly what this self-righteous Pharisee was praying. You see, it's entirely possible to address your words to God, but actually be praying to yourself because your focus is on yourself. It's not on God. Your passion is on your agenda, not on God's. Your attitude is my will be done, not thy will be done. This man loved to praise, but he praised himself in his prayer, not the Lord. And we can do this. I'll tell you some of the times that we do it the worst. It's in our times of worship. Where where we're not concerned about bringing to the holy God who's enthroned in the heavens a sacrifice of praise from our own hearts. It's like, well, you know, I, I wish they'd pick up the beat on that song a little bit. Or I wish they'd slow it down. You know, it goes either way, doesn't it? Endlessly so. I wish they'd sing it this way. I wish they'd sing it that way. I wish this. I wish that. You know, don't you see how it really can be, so much of that can be, does what happens on this platform please me? You know what? Look, I hope it pleases you. It pleases me. And I I hope it pleases you or many. But look, let's just be honest. We can't measure it necessarily by how it pleases us. Now, look, I understand there's all different genres of music and such like that, and, and I, I don't expect anybody to, to enjoy a genre of music just because it's directed to God if they just don't like that kind of music. Okay, I, I get all that with the different musical styles, and I don't despise it. But at root, it's not about what pleases me as an individual. It's about what I bring to God in the sacrifice of praise. If I'm worshiping him in spirit and in truth, if it's all just reflected back... If my measure of it all is how I enjoy it, then man, that's a pretty poor measure, isn't it? Which of those two guys that went up to the temple to pray, does that more align me with then? 
You know, he says um, in verse 11, it's a great phrase. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. In this so-called prayer, the Pharisee praised himself and compared himself to other men. You know, it's, uh, it's not hard to have a high opinion of yourself if you compare yourself to other people, isn't it? You can always feel like a winner by comparing yourself to other people. So I don't care. You know, you, you could win the prize for being the worst person in this room. It would take us about 20 minutes in this town to find somebody much worse than you. Right? It's just how it is. You compare yourself with other people, you're always going to come out a winner. And then he turns to the side and he sees a tax collector. And what did he say? Verse 11, even as this tax collector. And as I mentioned to you before, it's very emphatic. And then he goes on to say all that he does spiritually. I tithe. I fast twice a week. I do all these amazing things. I do all these things to please you, God. Aren't you so happy with me? I like what our friend John Trapp, the commentator, said about this. He says he's putting words into the mouth of the Pharisee. I am not as this publican. And then Trapp says, no, for thou art worse. Yea, for this, because thou thinkest thyself to be better. You are not like this publican. You're worse. Because look at how the publican prays, the tax collector. Verse 13. The tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you see the two postures of prayer? There's the self-righteous Pharisee, you know, warming up his voice so everybody can hear him, you know, me, 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 you know, standing in a prominent place, getting just that right spiritual posture, you know, hands at the right angle. I don't know what it was, you know, not too low, not too high, just the right angle, you know, where it's up there, but not exactly like everybody else does it. You know, the head cocked just the right way, the eyes closed, but just barely open so that he can see what other people, because he needs to know what other people are seeing too. And then he prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. You know, just beautiful. There's something musical and beautiful about it. In contrast, the, the tax collector, he's standing afar off. He doesn't even come close. His hands are in his pockets. He hangs his head down. He won't even open his eyes. And then he takes a hand out of his pocket. Well, it's silly. They didn't have pockets back then, but you know what I mean. And he just starts beating his chest. Why would he beat his chest? By the way, in the original language, the idea is that he hit his chest repeatedly. And it's like, this heart is corrupt. I am am broken on the inside. The problem's in here, in here, in here. He can't even lift up his eyes to heaven. But all he can do is cry out before God. And this is all he says. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm sure he said it with a trembling voice. I'm sure he didn't have, you know, that rich baritone that the Pharisee said. I'm sure he probably halfway mumbled the words when he said them. It wasn't an eloquent prayer. It wasn't a power. It wouldn't get the applause. You know, oh, what a fine prayer. But rather, it was an exceedingly effective prayer because what does Jesus say? He says in verse 14, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
I'm fascinated by the thought that both of the men, both the Pharisee and the tax collector, they both thought, I'm not like other men. Isn't it true? The Pharisee said, I'm not like other men. I'm way better than them. The tax collector, I'm not like other people. I am so lost. Everybody else around me seems to have it. I am lost. I am not like other men. You know, I I have a special sympathy towards those who come to a church meeting like this, whether it be on a Sunday or a Wednesday night. I have a special sympathy for those who come and they feel lost. They feel everybody around me has something that I don't have. It seems easy for them. It's not easy for me. I'm not like these people. I say, listen, you're in the perfect place. That's exactly how this man felt. And so he cries out and he says, be merciful to me. And that word merciful is a very special word in the ancient Greek language. And without getting into too much technicality, it's used in the sense of mercy obtained by an atoning sacrifice. It's actually a very special word. It's not just the regular word for mercy. It has the idea of propitiation, an atoning, satisfying sacrifice. And it's just a few words that he says. Charles Spurgeon said this. In the original Greek, the words are even fewer than in the English. Oh, that men would learn to pray with less language and more meaning. What great things are packed away in this short petition. God, mercy, sin, the propitiation, and forgiveness. In just a few words. But the result was glorious too. You see there in verse 14, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The justification of the tax collector was immediate. He humbly came to God on the basis of God's atoning sacrifice, and he was justified. He didn't earn his justification. He didn't have to have a probationary period. He came to God in this humble way and believed, and God justified him. He was justified because as a sinner, he came and he humbly asked for mercy. It's as if he asked for it in the terms of atoning sacrifice. It's as if he prayed this, Oh God, be satisfied with the atoning sacrifice and forgive me. And isn't that a powerful prayer? Notice, notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, God, be merciful to me. I'm not like that self-righteous Pharisee. He didn't say that. He didn't say, God, be merciful to me. I am a repentant sinner. He didn't say that. He didn't say, God, be merciful to me. Here I am, a praying sinner. He didn't say, God, be merciful to me. I'm only human. He didn't say, God, be merciful to me. I'll try to do better. He didn't say any of those things. He simply prayed body, soul, and spirit. Remember this. God, be merciful to me. A sinner. Listen, there is something very beautiful about recognizing your standard, your standing, I should say, as a sinner who needs forgiveness. I just remember this. Um, I think it's Luther who said it, but Spurgeon quoted it. How we always get into big trouble when Satan tries to tell us what horrible sinners we are. We try to debate the issue with him. 
We try to counter back to him. No, no, no. I'm not such a bad sinner. Look at all these good things I do. Look at it. No, no, no. I'm not such a bad sinner. Spurgeon, or I forget if it was Luther or whoever. Just think it was me. They said this. They said, stop trying to persuade the devil that you're not such a bad sinner. Matter of fact, agree with him. Matter of fact, tell him some places that he forgot. And then say, no, no, no. I know I am a great sinner, but I have a great Savior in Jesus Christ. A great Savior who came to save great sinners. And that posture, God be merciful to me, a sinner, means everything. So Jesus applies the point there in verse 14. Everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Essentially, the Pharisees saw prayer and his spiritual life as a way to be exalted. But the tax collector approached God in humility. Listen, you want to know what humility really is? Humility isn't trying to pretend that you're nothing if you're something. Humility, more than anything, is just seeing things as they are. I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. That's me. Jesus, would you please save me as a sinner who needs a Savior? And just seeing things as they actually are not as you would pretend they would be. That's what humility is. All right, let's just do a few more verses here. Uh, three more verses, verses 15, 16, and 17. Jesus now is going to use children as examples of humility where we read. Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and he said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So mothers were bringing children unto Jesus. Some commentators say that it was customary for a Jewish mother to, on their child's first birthday, to bring the child to a prominent rabbi for him to touch them and bless them. I don't know if it was the same practice or something related to it, but Jesus, just come bless my baby, bless my child. And what did Jesus do? He took those babies in his arms and he said, well, I'll bless them, but let me also baptize these babies. Did Jesus say that? No, wait, it occurs to me, he did not baptize these children, did he? All right, it's a little hobby horse of mine right now in a phase of my life. I just had to mention that. I'll move on from it so I don't get stuck with it. But anyway, Jesus did not baptize these children, but he did bless them. But it shows us something beautiful, how Jesus could connect with these children and how he loved them and how he wanted to bless them and he simply wanted to touch them. Matter of fact, Matthew chapter 19 in describing this incident says that he laid his hands on them and he imparted a blessing to them by the laying on of hands. And this is what Jesus said, because the disciples are trying to push these mothers away. Can you see that scene in your mind? Oh, get away. Don't bother the master. He's got a lot on his mind. He's going to Jerusalem. He says some terrible fate awaits him in Jerusalem. Can you leave the man alone? Can you give him a little bit of space? Please don't bother him with the children. Jesus said, no, 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 stop. Let these children come to me. Do not get in their way. Do not forbid the children from coming to me. Friends, there's something so powerful, so beautiful in that very idea that we should just not hinder children from coming to Jesus. And let me just say, one of the things that I am so, I don't know, just so pleased with the way God moves in our congregation is I think that we have a wonderful, wonderful way of bringing children to Jesus. 
And I love the evangelistic efforts in our community, like child evangelism fellowship and other things that have a real heart to say, let's bring children to Jesus. Let's bring them to Jesus at a young age so that their lives can be transformed. I love how we do that as a congregation. I love how we do it in the community. Why? Verse 17, he says that it's important. For of such is the kingdom of God. Children receive the blessing of Jesus without trying to make themselves worthy of it. Without trying to pretend that they don't need it. We need to receive God's blessings the same way. Just come to Jesus and just let him put his hand on you and bless you. Oh, no, no, but I have to prove myself worthy of the blessing. No, you don't. A child's not trying to do that. Oh, no, I have to persuade him. No, just come and receive. He wants to lay his hand upon you and bless you in just that simplicity that a child would receive it. Father, that's my prayer. Would you move among us, Lord? Would you bless us with that awareness? That here you are, Lord. Um, We want to be as these little children to come and to receive this blessing, to come and to stop trying to prove ourselves worthy of the blessing that you have. We want to stand before you, Lord, like the tax collector in the parable that you said. And this simply, Lord, in humility to say before you, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do it, Lord, among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.